Welcome to the 100th episode of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. This week, I'm doing something very different from our usual format as there was no way I could let this magical landmark pass without mixing things up. So quite simply, sit back, relax, and listen to some of the best bits of the longest ever season one of any show on earth. Enjoy. What better way to kick things off than a first day at work story? We can all relate to that first day at work, but I'd hazard a guess that not all of our first days were quite like that of HR superstar John Dawson from episode 51. Now, I, I believe something amusing happened in your very first shift at, uh, at Mandarin Oriental. Oh, so, so, yeah, as in, um, so, so I, I joined it, um, I joined in November. And at the time, the GM at the time, Jared Sintas, liked everyone to do weekend manager duties, which, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of, I've got to be honest, because I'm a big believer that the ops guys are in ops because they're good. You put a HR guy in operations, not so good at it, you know, (laughs) 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 I work in HR. So, so yeah, so, um, so as as I mentioned at the start, I'm an early bird, like to get up, you know, and so you have to stay in the hotel over the weekend. So, you know, I stayed in the hotel Saturday night and you're allowed to use the facilities. So um, I go down to the gym 6am Sunday morning go and go and do my workout and it's a beautiful gym downstairs at the Mandarin Oriental and and, and, and when you go down the locker rooms they're quite dark um right so I go down to the locker room you know got to get changed and in the locker rooms they're all kitted out with steam room um relaxation beds you know showers you know, it's high and luxury hotel kind of thing you'd expect so you know I, I go in take my gym stuff off put it on the bench go and lay, um, have a shower, go in, um, in the jacuzzi, in the steam room, you know, go and lay on the relaxation bed, go and have another, you know, cool down shower, go to my locker. And my birthday is the 19th of December. And so I always put like my, my stuff in locker number 19. So go to find locker number 19. And it's just like, these locker rooms are big. I, I could have swore it was there. It was def- It was definitely by the door when I came in. And I start looking around and I'm thinking, hold on, these lockers are completely different. And then the penny drops. So I'm thinking, oh, no. So literally I walk outside, open the door and realize I'm in the women's changing rooms. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Bear in mind, this is the first week of January, right? And I started the job in November. I'm, I'm still in my probation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm in the women's locker rooms, <laughs> you know, at like 6.30 in the morning. You know, it's a good job there's no one around, you know. And I'm like, oh, my word. So literally get my stuff, you know, running to the men's. I'm like, I can't believe I've made this mistake. So literally, you know, get changed. And I literally, I'm emailed with the GM and the hotel manager says, listen, just to let you know if it's on CCTV, I made a huge mistake. But my biggest fear was that what would have happened if someone would have actually come down, you know, I, yeah. I'm there literally in my pair of shorts in the ladies' locker room. They say, I want to see the duty manager who's the most senior person. Then I rock up, you know. And that's you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah, that was kind of my first kind of um, foray in Mandarin. But, but Gerard and, and Flavia, who's a, the hotel manager, I did have a laugh about it. It's, hey, you know, no, no problems, no, you know, no issues were caused type of thing. But, yes. Yeah, so. yeah. If John had been caught out there, perhaps he might have claimed mistaken identity to get out of it. Which leads us nicely to our next story in my chat with two Michelin-starred chef and all-round top bloke, Alex Stilling, back in episode 14. Alex and I recalled a situation where another superstar of the kitchen world got a touch confused. Can you remember um, that evening at Fortnum and Mason, uh, a little story around my introduction to Helen DeRose? If not, I'll happily, I'll regale you. Yeah, you can remind me. I mean, I'm sure I remember it if, if, you, if you remind me a little bit. 
Yeah, do you remember it was a it was a pop up that you were doing in Fortnum and Mason at forty five? Well, now forty five German Street. I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah, it was something else at the time. Yeah, yeah, and you'd set up like a I suppose a prep station or or whatever it was uh, on the way to the toilet. Yeah, um, just just because it was the only place you could. And I remember getting up and uh, going to the toilet, which is hardly groundbreaking, and then coming back and uh, Helen. Uh, pulled me to one side and asked me if I could get her a bottle of water. Uh, yeah, I remember that. I was quite yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> and I remember you stepping in um, like with a, a look of uh, almost panic on your face to say, look, no, 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 he's a guest. He's a guest. He's not, he's not part of the team. Yeah, yeah. I was, of course. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can remember that clearly now. Yeah, and that was um, oh, the, the learning I took from that is uh, don't dress as a waiter when you're going out for dinner. Yeah, yeah. Check, yeah. check the uniform of the staff to where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> As we've just heard, how you dress can make a big difference in how you're perceived, so imagine what it's like to see some recognised leaders all kitted out in fancy dress. Imagine no more in this classic from Hayley Connor in episode 10. Okay, so a question I love to ask everybody that, that comes on and has a chat yep. is, over your career so far, tell me a funny story, something that amusing that's happened to you along the way. So many. I think um, there are stories that in my early days, if I ever got an HR call saying that, I'd be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe that's happened." Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've had I've had my hair washed with mint sauce in the bath before, <laughs> just for fun. It was an initiation process. Yeah. <laughs> Getting mint sauce out of your hair is not great, but I think one of the brightest and funniest moments I've had was at Antic. And we had had a bit of a tough year with a couple of things. And the founder, Anthony, was like, right, you know, let's, we're going to have a big party. It's the end of year party, which happens in March. Um, and um, it's instead of celebrating Christmas. So we created a pantomime and it involved all of the sort of business support team, a couple of the, the managers. In Antic, the design team were in-house as well. So they did all the set design. Anthony played Jack. We had um, the managing director as the buttons, the sidekick. Right. And I was the director and the scriptwriter, uh, going back to my acting days. And we created this amazing pantomime, which was Jack and the Beanstalk, but also a little bit of an underlying story of what had happened in Antic that year. Right. And it was just brilliant. It was so funny and the team absolutely loved it. And it played a bit of tongue in cheek with some difficult stuff that had been ongoing. Yeah. And yeah, I think that was that was one of the highlights for me. Also, I just, I'm a massive fan of seeing leaders in fancy dress costumes. <laughs> um, our own CEO, Chris Gumbrella at Briathan Kitchen last year on our um, menu launch, got dressed as a chicken and walked the streets of Cardiff, which was of course, which was a lot of fun too. But I think in hospitality, you just have those funny, funny moments throughout. Yeah, it's great when leaders get involved in the fun, but the reality is that that happens everywhere, and hijinks is never far away. Back in episode 34, I was lucky enough to get some time with Anne Golden who had another excellent example along with our first foray into the unfortunate behaviour of guests. Well, you know, in hospitality, there's almost like an unwritten rule that you can't kiss and tell. Yeah. But, yeah, so unfortunately, all the best stories really probably can't be shared. Um, I did, as I say, spend, you know, more than a decade in uh, lifestyle, 
So you can just imagine some of the shenanigans that went on there. Yeah. But no, we used to we used to get lots of famous people from all different sort of industries staying with us. We regularly had uh, we had little gnomes. I don't know how well you know St. Martin's Lane, but we had little gnomes that were little stools in the lobby. Um, oh, and yeah. They, yeah, they'd regularly be stolen by our guests in a, you know, sort of a drunken caper. And then they'd be returned to us. They'd come back in a, a, a taxi. A taxi would turn up. Um, <laughs> and the cabbie would get out and go, I've got delivery for you. It would be the gnomes come back with a little note attached. That happened lots of times. Right. Yeah, we, you know, we just had a lot of fun. I remember during the Olympics, we were, we had a sellout of both hotels, uh, Sanderson as well. And um, given that the nature of the business meant that, you know, buses would arrive and, and take almost the entire content of your guests off to the Olympics. And then, you know, we were all there left. Um, now, what do we do? So after after you'd done all, you know, the housekeeping, et cetera, et cetera, we decided to have our own Olympics. And we, we, we split everyone up into departments, even with like medal ceremonies. And But to, to try and um, cut down on uh, craziness, you know, we would have things like foam javelins and um, we would do it in the car park, right. have all these activities. But, you know, we had we started getting injuries because people are so super competitive. You know, we have people like breaking their wrist during the egg and spoon race and things like that. So we had to <laughs> down. But um yeah, lots of um, exuberance, you know, so we'd, we'd be hard at it doing our own little Olympics while all of our guests <laughs> were out at the real Olympics. Like like I say, even the medal ceremonies, we had so much fun. Yeah. And then um, they'd all come back. We probably, in, on some occasions, depending on what, what events they were going to see, probably had more fun than them. But yeah, I mean, look, they, uh, just it, hospitality is, is fantastic. I think one thing it does is imbues everything with a sense of creativity and fun. You know, we've made sort of films for, you know, sister hotels opening all over the world, which have included the whole team. And staff parties in hospitality are legendary, aren't they? They Um, certainly are. You know, so we'd have like crazy themes and Halloween parties. And I think that's what, you know, it's interesting. I'll go back to your point earlier on when you were saying that people who are outside of the industry don't see the appeal. I think if they knew the half of it. Yeah. I think it's the best kept secret really is just that's a great way of summing it up actually yeah Yeah. I mean we know how much fun we have not all guests are up to mischief and a reminder in our next story that it doesn't matter how high profile people your guests are there's always scope to get the crack with them Shane McHugh from episode 89 demonstrates that wonderfully here yeah and just to and just in terms of kind of a life experience being able to serve the type of people I served you know who gets to say that on the same table every Saturday night, you were serving Tom Jones, you know, yeah. Sir Tom Jones. Yeah. Sorry, and oh, I was going to crack a joke then, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I just I, I held it in. I held it in. Something, something about being not unusual, but anyway. And just all of that kind of stuff is just is 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 such a cool thing, and I have so many great memories of just serving people there. Stand out one. There was one with Tom Jones. There was another one with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger came in for a really late dinner one night and I was just in one of those moods where I was just in the mood for just having a bit of crack with everyone so <laughs> he ordered a really nice glass of California wine we had on the Coravan and obviously he went for that because he was the governor of California at the time and I went up to the table yep. with the wine list and I said are you sure you want that you don't want to be drinking that crap I said drink something for an Oregon or something like that and he gave me 
he gave me his his full Arnie get to the chopper voice, and he was like, "I can't believe I'm the governor of California. He's recommending Oregon wine," and his <laughs> his person that was with him, whether it was security or whatnot, was also Irish. And he just looked at me and went, "He's ha- he's Irish. He's having the on." And he burst out laughing. And we just had such a great laugh over it. And I was just thinking, oh, what, what a random thing. Sweaty moment there. Sweaty oh, moment. I know, yeah, I know. I kind of, I had no fear that day. I don't know why. Carrying on with the guest theme. If you shoot high enough, you can find yourself doing the most incredible things. Chef extraordinaire Scott Holsworth from episode five with this belter. Anything terrifying happened to you? Um, don't know. Terrifying. Um... Just, uh, I suppose the worst thing that, one of the worst things that happened to me uh, organizing an event once, uh, I completely forgot to bring an ingredient and um, the event was being organized in London for a private home in Madrid. Um, and they'd, it was for David Beckham, it was for Victoria Beckham actually. And David Beckham had been organizing it as a surprise for Victoria. And um, right at last minute they said, Oh, by the way, um, bring some sake, but bring the sake, um, special sake cups. They love they love drinking out of those. Uh, make sure you bring everything. And I said, okay, no worries. And I forgot the sake, and I forgot the sake cups. And I got to Madrid, and I went, oh my god! And I was at their house, and we we're getting set up, and I I just I I just went white. You know, I was like, oh my god, we've come all this way, and I've even bought I've even bought our pastry chef, and we've bought a Paco jet machine with us so that the ice cream's perfect, and I can't believe i've got i was terrified and i called a guy that i a tuna supplier who i'd met a few months earlier and who happened to live in madrid and i said i don't suppose you know anyone this is on a sunday night or something as well that has uh, a japanese restaurant that can get me sake and sake cups and this guy was just he was so relaxed about it he just said scott no problem i call you back he called me back he said what's the address i've got the stuff i've got the stuff for you and he magically called someone and brought me sake to the gates of uh, Beckham's house um, and sake cups. <laughs> so I had my butt saved that time. Scott also demonstrating some world-class think-on-your-feet problem-solving skills there. Very, very useful in this industry. Our next story also demonstrates that with a twist. When I started this podcast, I had no idea that I'd be dealing in matters of the paranormal, but that's exactly what we got when Joanna Kurovska came our way in episode 98. Funny stories. Uh, okay, I'm not too sure that I'm such a fun person, but I can try. I think it might the, the the funniest story that we have had in in the hotel industry so far was the story in in Warsaw when um, we were convinced that we have a ghost in the hotel. So there was okay. a weird noise. That, that's Warsaw, a good start. That's a good start. You need to see the hotel in Warsaw. It's um it's forty, I think, forty four or forty five floors of the glass tower in the city center of Warsaw. One right. of those buildings. Oh, that's a hotel. And the guests kept complaining that they heard noises. Uh, literally, the, the complaint from the night crew was the guest tells us that they are hearing noises. When it happens once, you might think, okay, the guest has a problem, so we are not going to really worry about it. But when it keeps happening, you start thinking there is truly something wrong with the hotel if the guests are hearing noises. Yeah. So we have started a full investigation as to what kind of noises the guests might be hearing. And the investigation went very far, and I took it on myself to solve the mystery of the ghost. We started to call this voice uh, a ghost. Yeah. So I analyzed the guest complaint, and I nailed down the room when the voices were coming from. So I asked the GM to sleep in the room, right, to allow me to stay in uh, overnight. So I did stay <laughs> overnight. It was a room 3901, so I was staying in the room 3901. I'm staying there in bed, fully dressed, because I'm prepared to tackle the ghost when it appears. <laughs> 
And indeed, the voice started at around 11, maybe quarter past 11. There was a voice. I was not crazy. There was something going on. There was someone calling, maybe not me, but calling someone. It, it right. was pretty spooky. So <laughs> believe me, at 11 p.m. in a hotel like that, you, you don't really want to be there alone with a noise um, of unknown origin. But <laughs> That's fair to say, yeah. <laughs> but with my own determination, I uh, I took my you know master key that opens all the doors because th- th- I was fully... Uh, in a very Sherlock Holmes type of mode. Uh, and I went listening to the voice, trying to determine where the voice was coming from. And the voice indeed brought me to the heart of house engineering room in on the 42nd floor, I think it is. Absolutely okay. the middle of the darkest possible corridor where no one ever goes. And the voice was there or the noise was there behind the wall. So I sat down and I started to think, so what is behind the wall? Since obviously, you know, I don't have the drawings in my head and I am just a finance director. So how would I know what's behind the wall on the 42nd floor? I went around, I went to the 43rd floor, I checked everything that I could have checked. And then I discovered that behind this wall, there is actually a swimming pool uh, that goes two floors down. So yes, that was quite logical. I just, you know, couldn't imagine in my head that the swimming pool floor is going to be on the 42nd floor. And what appeared to be the ghost was actually a swimming pool vacuum cleaner that Ah, you put on at 11 p.m. So indeed, at 11 p.m., someone was putting on the vacuum cleaner for the swimming pool, and this vacuum cleaner was just making its way through the swimming pool, making the the noise. And truly, we have changed. I don't know what. We have changed the vacuum cleaner. We have changed the provider of vacuum cleaners. Something has changed, but this vacuum cleaner was making the noise the previous ones were not making. It took me the whole night, but I found the reason and I discovered and I somehow unraveled the mystery of the ghost of intercontinental Warsaw. Joanna doing a great job there, using a practical mind to overcome what others couldn't and proving that sometimes not everything is as it seems. Jose Rui is up next from episode 36 with another case in point. That, that is one thing that I have learned after working in this industry is that, you know, what I take for granted comes from my life experience and not everyone has had my life experience. Yeah. Some people come to a hotel and it's the first time in their lives that they've been able to afford or, or, or just they have never been to a hotel. So, yeah, I know that there is a do not disturb sign that hangs inside the door. But if you've never seen it, you never had that in your life experience. What would you know? Yeah. No, I, mean, I think that that's a bit extreme, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've done that anyway. But let's not go there. But you know, I, I'll give you another example, and this was a, again on the same hotel, and it just one of those that made you think, mm, okay, yeah, yeah. When God yeah. gave brain cells, they didn't distribute them evenly. <laughs> uh, this, this, we had this massive group coming through a, an American travel agent. Uh, we had them regularly come into the hotel. Anyway, this massive group arrives and of course the whole porter team goes to pick up the luggage from their buses and take them up to the rooms and get them all settled in. We check them all in. Perfect. About an hour later I receive a call from one of them saying that the luggage uh, has not been delivered yet. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay, well, no problem. Let me just check with the with the luggage team. So I spoke to the porters and they said, no, 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 we've delivered all the luggage. So I said, oh, maybe by the time I come to see you, it has been delivered. So let me call the guest. So I called the guest and I said, oh, I'm, I'm just being told that, the, that all the luggage has been delivered. Do you have it now? And the guest says, no, I don't. Oh, okay. That is when the alarm bells start ringing yeah. in your head. <laughs> so you call the luggage master and the luggage master tell you, say, all of it has been delivered. I have all the receipts, so there is nothing left to deliver. Okay, okay. 
call the guest again. The guest says, no, I still don't have my luggage. So at that point, you call security. Security start looking for the luggage in all the luggage storage areas. Nothing is found. And they say, okay, let me go and speak to the guest. So they call the guest. The guest comes down to reception and security is there asking the guest what the luggage look like and how many bags and so on. So I'll give a full description. Everyone in the hotel at this point is looking for the luggage. And it's, it occurs to the security manager to ask the guest, when was the last time you saw your luggage? And the guest says, uh, when I left my house in Texas. Oh. So like, uh, okay, no, no, no. Let me repeat the question. When was the last time you saw your luggage in the UK? No, I have never, I've not seen my luggage in the UK. <laughs> Well, okay. Well, well, okay. Hang on a second. You arrived at Heathrow this morning. The luggage was taken out on this uh, conveyor belt. So when you pick up the luggage, no, I didn't pick up my luggage. <laughs> <laughs> so you're thinking again that you're in candid camera thinking, what's happening here? So, so, no, so you're talking really slowly to see this person is obviously not understanding. So, so, so talk me through. You left your house in Texas yesterday. What happened? Well, I left my house. Uh, with the luggage? Yeah, of course, with the luggage. What do you think? I'm stupid? Okay, <laughs> well, well. so what did you do? So I left the house. Did you go to the airport in Texas? Did you get a taxi to the airport? So no, 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 no. We got picked up. Okay, so you got your luggage. You put it in the car to pick you up. No. Okay, so basically the guest left their house, put the bags at the front door, got in the car without the luggage, went to the airport, got on a plane, and arrived in London. So when we get that clear, we ask the guest, so if you didn't bring your luggage to the airport in America, how do you expect the luggage to be in London? <laughs> and then he deadpan-faced, he says, well, our tour operator told us when we paid for this trip that portrait was included in the price. And this gentleman genuinely thought that a porter from a hotel in London was going to fly to the States to pick up the luggage from his at his doorstep and bring it to London. And he genuinely thought that that's the way it worked. My word. <laughs> but you nearly left me speechless with, with that. There was a long period of silence through that story where literally my mouth was open. Yeah, that's one of those that you think, I, I think I've seen everything now. Yeah. But well, but you won't have. There'll be no. I, there'll I be more. <laughs> indeed, indeed. A great story of guest ineptitude there from Jose. Most guests, thankfully, are not in that league, and in fact, sometimes you get to do some quite incredible things. I can't tell you what an honour it was to chat to Harry Murray, MBE, back in episode eighty-three. Having built an enviable career, Harry talked us through one of the many amazing moments: putting on a banquet for President Mandela. The most exciting thing for me during that period was that President Mandela would come to the hotel sometimes twice a week. Right. And, and this was probably, you know, this was the most inspiring period of my career because when he spoke to you, you felt you were the only person in the room. Yeah. I mean, his, his style of leadership was just unbelievable. And I always re will remember, and Andrew Coggins probably remembers as well, but I will always remember receiving a call to go uh, because, as you probably know, government is run, you know, six months in Pretoria, six months in Cape Town, and, and, and it was Cape Town. No, I didn't know that. There and I, I was invited to, to his office 
And I went over to his office and, and was asked by his personal secretary, is, is your banqueting suite available? This was a Monday. Is your banqueting suite available next Tuesday? And I, I was almost sure it was, but I said, let me just check. And I phoned the hotel and they said, yes. And I said, yes, it's available. Can we reserve it? I said, of course. And I said, what is the occasion? And they said, uh, the president is hosting a banquet for Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, crikey. <laughs> I mean, one week's notice. Yeah. And I mean, I'd done events for royalty before and I knew the protocol. I mean, normally all the staff are checked. They, you know, they come into the hotel, they check all the records, menus have to be agreed. But the, the answer was the president is the host and he will choose the menu and so forth. Yeah. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they they left the menu to me and we, we um, hosted this banquet for 500 people, which included 13 chiefs from all over the country, all in, 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 in full costume. Mm. And that was probably, you know, one of the most memorable occasions of, of, of my career was hosting a banquet. And what, what many people don't know, I mean, the Royal, the Royal Yacht was in the harbour. And what many people don't know is that the value of the Royal Yacht and the value of the Queen when she goes abroad, because with her go three or four cabinet ministers and the CBI. Yeah. And they're selling this country. You know, they're yeah. selling the wares of this country. And I, I was, as a result of that banquet, I was actually invited onto the Royal Yacht and met many of these industry leaders. And it just sort of demonstrates that how important that that you I know I know it was criticized but it does an invaluable job you know you the CBI and and, and I mean that's that had gone on for years and years around the world mm. but yeah very very sort of exciting time Harry Murray MBE there with just one of the many amazing stories from his career we don't all get the opportunity to serve royalty in this industry but that doesn't mean that there aren't other cool things that you can get up to like this absolute cracker from Chris Fletcher, all the way back in episode one. And I, I ended up meeting the Hard Rock Cafe, which was, I would say, the biggest day of my career uh, so okay. far. That's because, quite uh, bold. Yeah, 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 because I, I met a guy called Callum McPherson, uh, who was the VP of whatever, Vice President of Operations for Europe. Sounds very grand. Yeah. But Hard Rock, love a title. Well, from well Hard Rock was, you know, it was, uh, I, I didn't, I, I knew it was a burger joint. I didn't know anything about it really. And they, they had London and Manchester at the time. Um, sorry, London and Edinburgh at the time. They're just about to open Manchester. And uh, they wanted to go on a bit of a UK rollout, which turns out not to be a great idea, but they wanted to do that. Uh, and I met Callum in Park Lane, which is their first one in London. And uh, wow, I mean, I told him I was a Liverpool fan. Bang, in, straight away, which is just... Oh, bang, he didn't hit you. Oh, no, 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 no he was me. like the happiest man. Then he said, oh, where are you from? I said, Liverpool. He went, oh my God, the Beatles. And I was just like, yeah, the Beatles. And that was it. And and from that moment, we got on really well. And um, he turned out to be probably the biggest influence of my career and working at Hard Rock, uh, just amazing. The friends I made there will be friends for life. And they have, um, if you've ever been there, they have uh, mantras, they have love or serve or take time to be kind and all is one. That are three main things. Right. And I would question you, if you can find anyone who's ever worked for Hard Rock who doesn't trot them out on a daily basis, I, I, yeah, I'd be amazed if you couldn't because we just lived it. We absolutely lived it. I worked, I ran the um, backstage catering for Live Aid um, in Hyde Park. Wow. So I served Paul McCartney, Madonna, The Who. Yeah, very cool. The night before Live Aid kicked off, 
we had to build the we were building the tents out the back and all the catering and um, we sat in Hyde Park having a break it was probably about half past ten at night and Madonna came on stage and practiced her set it was about ten builders and me and the chef we sat there and watched her I mean that's hospitality right yeah, so yeah. We, watched, we watched that and uh, he was like you think and the chef is a Scottish guy from uh, who's the hard rock who's the hard rock GM in Madrid a guy called George Sharp and George said to me wait here wait for this and then uh, the next guy that came out was um, Pink Floyd and it was the first time that uh I think, uh, I forget his name, that's really bad. The guitarist had joined them. Gilmore had come back to okay. play with them. Yep. It's the first time they'd done that in 20 years. And uh, they played Comfortably Numb to an audience of 12 in this huge arena in Hyde Park. And we saw that, you know, and I'm just the Phenomenal. dude who runs the mix burgers, that flips burgers out the back. How cool was that? Continuing the music theme next with a story from myself, ably aided by Chris again and his work other half, Kieran Bailey. From episode 20, a special aired for Hospitality Aid, I make no apologies for the impression. Yeah, well, I, I've got a story about Geldof. Oh, hang on. Should, should yeah, I share? I don't know yeah. if I should. Yes. I, um, Is uh, it going to make us some friends, Phil? Um, it's funny. Let's that, do it then. If that do helps. It. I don't know about the friends thing, but yeah, I, my first land job, because I did start my career at, at sea, I opened Coco in North London, the music venue. What a place, and, mate. Yeah, it was uh, it was one hell of an experience, and we had um, we put on loads of uh, after show parties for movies and things like that, and cut straight to the point. We were putting on Alfie. You remember the the remake with Jude Law? Yeah, that um, should never have happened. Yeah. I've got I've got a story about him, but I'm definitely not sharing that one. And I got this. I was a member of the management team. I was doing my rounds. It's a massive venue. If you've ever been, it's mm. crossed six yeah. floors. And the earpiece I got, uh, one of the bouncers said, can a member of the management team come to the entrance to the VIP area? Uh, I've got a bit of a situation. And I did like the, the FBI. I'm in the vicinity, I'll take it. And, <laughs> um, and went there. And the, the bouncer just said to me, can you tell this gentleman that there's nothing going on up there? We're using it as a, as a place for the artists to get changed, basically, who were on, on the stage. And I turned, and here's Sir Bob Geldof. And uh, I did, I'm not a guy that gets starstruck in any way, but I did that thing you do when you, you see somebody, you kind of go, oh, it's you. Okay. Uh, what's, what appears to be the problem, sir? And, uh, and he says, I just seen Dave Stewart go up these stairs. I just seen it. I need to get up there. And I said, uh, he's, Dave Stewart won't be up there because we're not letting anybody up there of, of that kind of, of caliber. If you like, I'll just call down to the front to see if anybody's actually... Um, if Dave Stewart's actually even in the building. Uh, and he went, oh, I've just seen him. He's gone up there. I need to go up there. It's a party going on. It's, it's got, me needs to be involved. And I went, no, hang on a minute. Just leave it with me on the radio. Is Dave Stewart in the, uh, in the building? No, not yet. That's fine. He's not even in the building, sir. If you like, I'll take you back to your area. But I've just seen him, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. Eventually calmed him down, took him back to his seat and plied him with a bit more champagne. Thought nothing of it. The night went off without a hitch. I had the next day off because we were due to finish at like four or five o'clock in the morning. And then the next day when I came back into work, there was a copy of the Daily Star on my desk with an article circled. And it said, so Bob Geldof belittles jobs worth management at Coco. And I was like, ah, yes, that's me. <laughs> I'm a jobs worth manager. I've absolutely made it. So there you go. That's my little story. As I say, I make no apologies for my attempted Sir Bob Geldof impression. Speaking of impressions, it really pays to make a good first one, and I'm still trying to figure out if the fabulous Kelly Rickson, MBE, did so or not with one of her many stories from episode 44. It's great, and the, you know, the stories 
are, are, are fantastic that you you know I look back on my time there I, I went to Hopton Holiday Village right so Hopton it was on uh, uh, the east coast so uh, close to Great Yarmouth and it was just literally almost from the day I arrived I mean the journey there Phil was hysterical as well so I, I just I'm definitely a have a go kind of girl. So I get this job, I do an audition and I get this job to go and work at Hopton Holiday Village and, and great. When do you want me to start or can you go tomorrow? Yes, absolutely. So I go and I book my um, National Express coach ticket to go to Hopton Holiday Village and I get on and, and to go from Liverpool to Great Yarmouth took 12 and a half hours. Right. Because uh, at one point, yeah, at one point we were like seven miles from London or something, so it literally went everywhere. It, in my youth and naivety, and and you know, it was early nineties. I figured the best thing to wear to turn up at my first day was some great white jeans and a white denim jacket. Not really working out that twelve and a half hours on a National Express coach would not really do me a, a great service in, <laughs> in white denim, but I, I wore it anyway. So I, the the bus pulls up in Great Yarmouth at nine o'clock at night or something and I'm like okay can you just point me in the direction of Hopton Holiday Village and the guy who's driving the bus just looked at me and went well it's about eight miles down the coast crikey so here I am with very little money at night going right how do we do it so he goes to me I'll, I'll, I'll strike you a deal if you clean the coach I'll drop you at Hopton Holiday Village which is what I promptly did in my white denim suit. So when I, oh, when I arrived at, at the, the, the camp, everyone was kind of excited to welcome me in. And I, I just cleaned a 54-seater National Express camp. <laughs> so, it, uh, yeah. Still, the guy, still done. You well, got the, what you needed. The guy said to me, the minute I saw the National Express coach pulling up to reception, I knew you were going to be uh, a handful. So, yeah, absolutely. Kelly definitely did make a first impression. I'll leave it to you to figure out whether it was a good one or not. Rest assured, Kelly's career has gone from strength to strength, and she's not the only one that found themselves dressed inappropriately at the wrong time with this absolute belter from episode 26 with HR and culture icon Eugenio Perry. Do you have any funny stories that you'd care to share with us? Oh, God. Um... I think, I mean, sure. I, I, I always think of the, the very first first one. So before I got into human resources, I was in finance for a little while, um, which was great, you know, and I love the skills I learned there and I can utilize them today, you know, so even though it was definitely a job I did not like, for sure, and I knew it wasn't going to make my long-term path, but, you know, that's when I was given the opportunity to potentially go into HR and I was so excited about it and all that kind of stuff. And I thought my avenue in is through training because, you know, I like being in front of people and I can talk and all that kind of stuff. So I remember they gave me the shot to do the first orientation on my own and including the hotel tour. This was a little hotel I was working back in Canada. And so I was like super excited and I had like practiced for days and, you know, especially my and I had learned all this cool stuff about the hotel and I was gonna like razzle and dazzle them, you know, and you know, and all that good stuff. And so I'm doing the tour and I am showing them the fitness club and the pool. And so I'm talking about the pool and the, it had this like dome ceiling over it and da 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 and I'm walking and I'm standing backwards and I fell in oh, the nightmare. <laughs> I literally fell in the pool in front of like all these new recruits on their day one of orientation. Oh my God. It was just 
the most hilarious thing. And I remember coming up from the water and like I had my head perched at like the side of the pool. And I think they couldn't tell if I was like crying or laughing or whatever. Of course, I was dying. I was literally laughing. I couldn't get out of the pool because I was like so mortified. And then I ended up doing the next hour and a half of orientation in a bathrobe in housekeeping while they were drying my clothes. And I remember sitting there talking about it in my bathroom and the general manager walks by housekeeping. He looks and he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, just go, just go. I'm so horrified. (laughs) But, you know, it made for obviously a great story and it became a bit legendary um, in that hotel. But um, it got me the job in the end anyway, because I was dedicated to even continuing my robe. Genial proving there that sometimes you may be destined for greatness, but it's not all sunshine and rainbows along the way. And how about this next one from the excellent Deborah Ward, who gave us so many cracking leadership lessons in our chat in episode 74. And this, I think we can all agree, is not a bad opening line for a story. I was thrown in jail in Kuwait um, because I ordered Christmas tree lights. So I worked for, for the Al-Humazi family, which is number one or two, depending on who you ask, on the OPEC ladder. And the Al-Sabaz family owned um, the TGIF on, on the Gulf Coast. Just you know, there's just this rivalry, right? Because they're just, just a rich rivalry. Anyway, so I ordered Christmas tree lights for my palm trees instead of festive lights. And of course, they use the words Christmas, and so right. that was the premise on which they said they were arresting me. And you know, next thing I know, I'm off to jail. Wow. <laughs> and it was just to scare me off, thinking that let's scare the little girl and she'll go back and they won't open, or or, or we'll at least delay it. Yeah. So you know. Interesting. Did it interesting work? Time. <laughs> Did it scare no, you off? No, I, I knew, you know, interestingly enough, I knew how powerful the family I worked for was. I was there for 20 minutes. I mean, right. I, I'm not going to comment on to how I got released so quickly and what transpired for that to happen. But yeah, it was 20 minutes. And I was never, interestingly enough, I was never scared. I've been more terrified on the streets of LA than I was in Kuwait. Right. <laughs> you know, I really, I, I never felt that. And, but in Africa, so after that job, I went and did, I ran two resorts in the Gambia, West Africa. I, I terminated my director of food and beverage for taking blood money from the staff. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was, it was painful. I mean, these people are beautiful. And I have to say, it taught me so much about pride. You know, there's, yeah. there's no more pride than in the African people. You know, they, they would come to work. A lot of them, you know, were on, on ground dirt huts. Uh, with no electricity, they were on a grid. So every quart, you know, it was split into four. So you got you got electricity kind of every second week. Goodness and, gracious, yeah. And, and, and yet they would come to work in immaculate uniform, pressed, you know, there's dust everywhere because of the dirt roads. Every, you know, their shoes are polished so you can see your face in them. And, you know, when I was working in Irvine, kids would pull their, their uniforms out of the bottom of a gym bag and think that should impress me because they remembered it. <laughs> you know, so the pride of the African people was just so astounding to me. But I, I, I had to terminate this guy for taking blood money. And, you know, again, highly connected communities, right? So they have their own ways. And I guess I, you know, I really went about this wrong. It obviously, and a big lesson for me. I think that what I did was right. Perhaps the way I went about it was wrong because the next thing I know, I had four NIA guards with semi-automatic rifles charge into my office and haul me off and interrogate me for four and a half hours. Oh my God. 
And well, that, who have, who yeah. have I invited on the show? This is, <laughs> yeah. I've never heard anything like it. I, mean, I know. I've, uh, I feel like I'm quite a well-traveled guy, but uh, geez, Louise, I have not, uh, I've not come across any of this before. The, um, the, it turned out that, that the, the, the gentleman I, I term, terminated his employment for taking blood money, his cousin was the head of the NIA in, in the National Intelligence Agency. Right. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, that was, you were definitely uh, on a, a losing one with that one. Yeah, yeah. Pick your battles and understand your audience. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Again, well, see, lessons learned. These are great, great lessons for for management and leadership as you progress mm-hmm. up. The, yeah, but by God, you'd, you'd hope you'd get them in a kind of less dramatic way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crikey, I think we need a nerve settler after that. Over to multi award winning hotel general manager Joanne Taylor Stagg to demonstrate that there's all manner of cool stuff happens in this industry, all the time and over the ages. Taken from our chat. In episode 96. Are there any stories that you can share with us of, uh, of fun times? <laughs> Apart from every day. Uh, apart from every day. Um, oh, putting me on the spot. Let me let me give that some... some Because uh, there's a million. It's just finding finding one that isn't... Going through the roller either, decks in your mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't too embarrassing or, or too awkward or... Uh, let, let's not go for a funny story, but I'm, I'm a child of a certain age as we've already discovered <laughs> um, and and you know one of the absolutely coolest things about my hotel that I just cannot get enough of telling the story is that um, Steven Spielberg used to stay here a lot in in the days that he was he was um, directing more and that's a that's a liked... great setup for a story by the way that's just dropping yeah. that name in <laughs> um so he he likes to work late and so he used to take two of our apartments because the apartments can in, interconnect yeah and he set up an editing suite in one of the apartments so et was edited in this hotel is that not the coolest thing to be able to tell you mate really yeah that is cool that's cool and that 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 speaks to the uh that creating experiences through history as well like in terms of you know what 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 went down in this hotel <laughs> correct and i think et is long enough uh, ago that i can get away with telling that story but i think it is such a cool story i mean you know there's been many others uh, going back just because whilst we're talking history over the of the road from the hotel is down street station it's a disused station they built it in the days where actually you could drive around mayfair so it got disused quite quickly and during the second world war they used to evacuate churchill from downing street to down street station right and the story goes i'm sure it's been embellished over the years yeah, but the, that never, that <laughs> never happens <laughs> no never 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 not at all yeah. not once um, the story goes that he would sit in our bar because he didn't like going in into down street he called it cold and dark and damp right. and he would sit in our bar drinking champagne that's probably the bit that's been embellished and smoking his cigar which i totally believe yeah um until he could hear the planes not until the sirens went off but until he could hear the planes and then he would walk over the road and down into down street and i love that story too i think that's also cool as yeah totally and and if I, well i'm just going to go with it that it's completely 100 percent true <laughs> well whether the champagne was true or not uh, yeah. you know he might have been drinking whiskey because actually he 
actually liked whiskey more if you read the history books. But right. whatever he was drinking, I really don't care. If it was water, I'd be happy. I, I think he's quite an adaptable drinker. <laughs> I think he was yeah. an adaptable drinker. Yeah. <laughs> the history and the shenanigans that have happened in some of our hotels is just super cool. Speaking of cool, we've heard lots of stories of celebrities, but what about when you work with one and one of the most recognisable names in the world? Here's Mark Darden from episode 58 to tell us. We need to put up 40 hotels in 18 months. Yes, go. exactly. Go, go do yeah. it. Do it quickly yeah. and do it fast, you know. So, yalla, yalla, go, go, go. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we did that, you know, open the hotels. Uh, and then also uh, what was very, very exciting was obviously the collaboration with Giorgio Armani. And that was... Yeah. Um, that one thing was creating a brand, the address brand. The other one was really, uh, obviously, Armani is a, is a brand, but how to translate the Armani DNA in in a hotel, in an hospitality brand. Yeah. And not only the brand, but it's also, obviously, the brand experience because, uh, you know, what does it mean to have an Armani check-in? What does it mean to have a, 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 a room experience? What is it? You know, so so yeah, that was that must be really interesting. That was to do. super super interesting and working yeah. working you know very very closely with an incredible icon uh, that uh, you know I have an incredible respect of. Uh, yeah. Well, at least you, you know the uh, the uniform is going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I have a story for that also, you know, because, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so we had obviously Armani uh, uniforms and we, 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 we hired a lot of young people, good looking, etc. great attitude, never worked in the hotel business and so on. The, the only problem when we, we got the shoes, so we had for the hostesses, we had uh, stilettos, which were great, you know, beautiful for about the first half an hour and they had, yeah. a, they had an eight hour shift, you know, so. After that, they were pretty much crying. Um, so we had a couple of these experiences uh, that were interesting, and just maybe one, uh, two, two little stories which I think I, I, I always um, repeat the stories because they they're quite special. One is then uh, you know we had the grand opening of uh, you know uh, Dubai, uh, flew in all the models and had a fashion show, and Mr. Armani came and and so on, and then our we, we told our colleagues, they said, look, um, you know, please don't approach Mr. Armani, don't do any selfies, and don't, don't, you know, don't bother him because, I mean, he's obviously very busy and so on. And Mr. Armani arrives, he does selfies with everybody, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, behind the DJ booth and on, on, on playing music oh, and uh, taking pictures and talking to everybody. And then I, I, I told Mr. Armani, you know, I, I really enjoyed what you did because, uh, you know, we, we briefed our, our team that um, we didn't want them to, to bother you. I said, look, Mark, it's very simple. You know, my name is, uh, is the brand and I represent the brand. So if I'm not approachable, then my brand is not approachable. And that was a great yeah. lesson. That was a great lesson. So true, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, a very simple idea. But what a massive impact. It's, it was huge, you know. And then the, the last bit that maybe for that story is is when we did the opening, we had about 500 colleagues. And uh, I, I, after the grand opening, which went very nice, everything fine, everybody happy, I, I had an email from Milan that said, look, uh, we want the name of all the participants, uh, uh, all the colleagues 
or I said, okay, I send send them the 500 with their position basically, and then uh, we we had a shipment arrive with a personal gift for each one, right? With a personal note which was done by by his office, obviously. But I think he even I can't remember if he actually signed those. Maybe somebody right. else signed it, personally addressed by name to all our colleagues and then a nice little gift uh, be it a belt or a tie or a scarf etc wonderful i mean he, he didn't he didn't have to do that but he he wanted to do it yeah. and i think that's on the uh, you know i can tell you all these colleagues have that scarf have that note they still have it you know and i'm sure yeah. you know whatever the belt or whatever they they received now isn't that just a cool story do you know what else can be cool winning awards. But sometimes even that doesn't pan out the way you might expect. Here's Adam Rowledge from episode 9 to explain. While I was at the uh, the Hempel, I was very fortunate to be nominated by Gareth for an Acorn Award, um, which I was awarded in 2012. So that was, a, yeah. that was my first kind of taste, if you like, of actually being recognised in the in the wider yeah. industry for what I was doing. I must doing, be quite was, good at this. Well, you know what, it was, it was funny and I still remember to this day... Um, it's a bit embarrassing, really. So I'm not sure I should be sharing this, but anyway, the, the oh, well, definitely, 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 sure. definitely yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, obviously, I knew that, that, that Gareth put the nomination for me, and um, was kind of waiting to hear. We'd had, I think, it was like sort of the, the last site visit from Nokia before the actual um, the games, and he said, "Oh, you know, can you can just go and double check, make sure these rooms are, you know, for the you know for the inspection." Mm. Um, something came up anyway and uh, you know kind of diverted my attention I thought that was more important to deal with which obviously it wasn't and I delegated the uh, um, the checking of the rooms and didn't follow up on it and uh, as we went into the room they had someone which kind of looked, looked into the courtyard and someone had been smoking a cigar on this little balcony on the thing and it was just sort of sit this you know burnt out cigar stuff in there right. and I cringed as we went, went in and nothing was kind of said about it at the time Gareth was with you at this point. Yes, yeah, right, so okay. myself, Gareth, and uh, and I think the um, I can't remember the name of the two uh, Finnish ladies from from Nokia. Anyway, so we kind of you know Sharon done blah 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 back to the desk, carry on with the rest of the day towards the end of the day, and Gareth, oh, okay, Adam, he's popped to the office for a second. The back office was a, like a long strip of um, like corridor with the various offices going up behind the back desk down the corridor. What's coming here? Um, so I sat down in the office and uh, you know, really, you know, like fair and sort of, you know, a bit disappointed to say the least about this. You know, <laughs> should, person in your position shouldn't be kind of making these mistakes or asked you to do this. You knew how important it was. Da, 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 da. And I was kicking myself because obviously it was you know, obvious that I should have, have done it. And then he just literally casually just dropped in, especially when you're an Acorn Award winner. Right. And I was like, <laughs> I was my face just dropped, and I was like, I didn't know what to say. Um, Right, you just disarmed the moment there as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, with that at that moment. But it probably had more impact, but rather than just kind of going in and getting a bit of a bollocking, which you know I knew I'd done that anyway, and it kind of really hit home. Actually, that that was the case. So um, yeah, I thought it was a really nice way of doing it, and that was uh, obviously pre-Olympics because this was the last visit, and the the actual awards thing wasn't until about September time. Then it was right. kind of all under embargo, so three months before I could uh, share the good news. But um, but yeah. As Adam has just shown, mistakes are an inevitable part of growth. To prove that they come in many forms, from episode 61, the wonderful Claire Bosey, who does a mountain of work for this industry. Here she tells us that it always pays to clear your answer phone messages. At that point, 
point in time, it was Michelin didn't have those big award ceremonies that they've got now. Um, and it was very much a case of scaring, scaring newspapers to see if anybody had leaked a press release to see if you could find out anything. It was all done by telephone or email. There was none of this glitzy ceremony now. And it was published in January. Um, but we always shut in January for a couple of weeks. And, and I remember the, 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 the January in particular that we'd closed. And instead of going on holiday, decided that, well, I think we were having some, I think we're having a new stove in the kitchen or something. There was work going on. We were just shut, but we were staying at home. Um, and I remember walking into the into the office in, in mid-January and seeing the answer phone flashing going, oh, I really cannot be bothered to go through the answer phone and contact all these people for booking. So, so I looked at the flashing light, ignored it, went out, went home. I think we went to the pub. And then at six o'clock the following morning, had a phone call from actually uh, Chris from Mr. Underhill's, the chef at Mr. Underhill, saying, you do know that you've got two stars? And I was like, no. And he's like, you've got two Michelin stars. And if I had bothered to answer the answer phone message, <laughs> when I went back to check, there was a phone call from Derek Bulmer, who was the then editor of Michelin, <laughs> saying, congratulations, you've got two Michelin stars. And it was just because I couldn't be bothered to answer the answer phone. Um, so, yeah, so then we had. That's amazing. And, and the, whole, the whole world then goes, goes slightly mad for a while. I'm sure things have changed since then, of course, and I'm also sure that there's much more advanced lines of communication. Things do change. That's, of course, inevitable. But what about this for a story from episode 68 and the wonderful Andrew Fishwick to demonstrate just how much things really have changed? So I took up a job as a very green, naive 19-year-old barman at this vast site in the city that doesn't exist anymore, just opposite Liverpool Street Station. It was at 100 Bishopsgate. And it was about 1,100 capacity. And it was absolutely bonkers. The city had never seen anything like it, I don't think. So it was a baptism of fire. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was absolutely great fun. And we were only open Monday to Friday. So I had a hospitality job that gave me my weekends off. And obviously I was doing it around college, so I mainly worked evenings. And we just had the most fun it was possible to have, I think, on a bar job. It was it was sort of, I mean, there are bits of it now I look back at and I think, oh my God. I mean, there were famous stories. We used to take the banking, which at the time was all, all cash, obviously. And we used to do something like 100 grand a week at that site. Wow. Uh, yeah. So we used to take it, like three or, four, three or four of the barmen would take it in rucksacks around to the post office on Houndstitch. And we'd quite often stop for a pint on the way with about 100 grand of cash in the bags. <laughs> so Unbelievable. Like that, yeah. I look back on now and think, oh my God, if someone did that in my organisation now, I'd brain them. But uh, yeah. <laughs> at the time, it, at the time we had no fear. We were young and it, you never thought of the consequences. Yeah, I don't know why we never stopped for a pint on the way back. We always stopped for a pint on the way there. I'm pretty sure that they wouldn't get away with that now. But as you grow, you absolutely don't know what you don't know. In episode 80, I was lucky enough to chat to Lorraine Copes, who is doing exceptional work around raising the bar on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. However, for her story, she had no plans to include anyone in her experience, also proving that you don't know what you don't know. Let me tell you, one one memory that has stuck with me forever is um, when I joined Punch Supply Company, so I was 21 at the time, and never worked in the food industry before, never went to a tasting before. Mm. and so I was super excited to be in a room eating for free you know I love food always have yeah and uh you know my parents are Jamaican and it's a big part of of our culture so I love food anyway so turned Mm. up to this tasting which actually in hindsight I had no business being at because 
it didn't really affect the, it didn't really affect the supply chain but I had a good relationship with the senior buyer at the time and she invited me along anyway right so you know the development chef the buyers there they're talking about the food and I think it was like a new menu development session and anyway it got to the the point of tasting the food and so obviously I topped in and yep. I'll never forget Bob Durkin who was the menu development manager at the time said to me Lorraine this is a tasting, not a buffet. <laughs> <laughs> and I was mortified, but that, that really stuck with me because I found it hilarious at the same time. And this was me, 21. I didn't know that, you know, tasting, you taste and that's it. I was like really tucking in. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> it's a full um, plate of food for me. Exactly. And yeah. so um, that has really just stuck with me. It really has. An absolute feast for Lorraine there. And why not? Sometimes, as well as devouring feasts, you get the opportunity to put feasts on for dignitaries from around the world, as Cyrus Toddywalla proved in episode 13, when he dished out this beauty from his time in India delivering banqueting for the Commonwealth Summit. And uh, this is interesting, I'll tell you. But 1983, January, I found myself at the Park Lane Hilton under okay. the guidance of Chef Oswald Meyer. And Oswald Meyer, because of the Hilton at that time being one of London's premier hotels and catering for all the biggest dignitaries in the world and big conferences being held over there, he knew yeah. about all the people that were coming for our summit. And my idea was to get to know as much as possible from him before I came back to Goa in preparation for the big summit. Anyway, yeah. so Hilton aside and came to Goa, it was a nightmare. Because at that time, the, if you remember, it was the height of the Tamil rebels in Sri Lanka. The okay. Prime Minister Jaya Vardhane was a big target. And being a Commonwealth uh, member, he was also invited to attend the Commonwealth Summit in Goa. So the Indian Army, the Indian Army, Navy, Air Force were on high alert because of, anyway, 48 heads of Commonwealth state inside your hotel at any given time is risk enough anyway. Is big yeah. enough anyway. On top of that, you know, you have the added added disadvantage of some people being targets of uh, mercenaries and whatever else. But <clears throat> I mean, all those hassles aside, I'll give you one or two stories which will really be interesting for the people. So the big hotel, on the top of the hotel, 18 new bungalows were created for the senior members of the Commonwealth. And right at the top, 520, 518, 519, 517, 516. So 517, 518, Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher. 519 was uh, Pierre Trudeau. 520 was Rampal, the chairman of the Commonwealth. And others, of course, around. And yeah. uh, what happened was they built a helipad at the hotel. So these people did not have to travel by coach. The coach journey from the airport to the hotel is about two hours. Right. So they said, we'll have to lift them. The baggage will come by coach. Their ADCs have already arrived a day before to prepare for all the premiers coming in to set up their sections, etc. All the rooms were completely vetted, checked by the Indian security, everything else. And so one by one, they flew in. And we got information, this one's come and that one has come and that one has come. And then we got information that Pierre Trudeau had arrived. Sorry, Pierre Trudeau had not yet arrived. Sorry. Pierre yep. Trudeau arrives at the airport in, the, of course, the national carrier. And he refuses to go by helicopter. He tells the security people, listen, he says, I can travel by helicopter in Canada anytime I want. But 
I want to go by bus. I want to experience on my bus. He was that kind of a character, I believe. And said, yeah. sir, but there is no security. There is no arrangement. He said, I don't care. Who's going to know me in Goa? I'll jump onto the bus. And he jumped onto one of the buses where all the luggage was coming in. And Pierre Trudeau arrived two and a half hours later with the luggage. As soon as he reached the lobby, they whisked him up in the, you know, the golf cart and shoot, shot him straight away to his room. His room overlooked a 10-kilometer stretch of beach, okay, pristine. All the beaches were cleared up because it was all under a security zone. Trudeau saw that. He got into his shorts and T-shirt and bang, he ran down the slope towards the beach. Now, when any premier is moving, security is informed by walkie-talkie that somebody is coming to be prepared. <laughs> he didn't tell anyone. He just dashed out of the room. The security guys nabbed him at the bottom of the hill and chucked him into a cell. And they locked him up because they had no information. Now, this is the press, Prime Minister of Canada running down the slope. Two Jawans, Jawans means soldiers of Indian Border Security Force, the toughest guys in the world they are. They are like the Green Berets or the SEALs, you know. They are that yeah. really trained. They nabbed him. He said, I'm Trudeau. He said, I don't know any Trudeau, Frudo, nothing. We don't understand. They threw him in the cell and they locked the cell up. <laughs> and in the hotel in the meantime, Mrs. Gandhi had called for a meeting and there was panic in the hotel because they could not find Trudeau. And here's this soldier trying to get in touch with his commanding officer to say that we have caught a mercenary and we have locked him up. He looks like a troublesome character because he is arguing and fighting and, you know, but no fighting, no arguing. Trudeau sat very peacefully enjoying himself on that little stool inside the little hole really feeling thrilled with himself that he had been nabbed by Indian soldiers and chucked into a cell. Yeah, well, he was at the moment. An experience that you can never um, uh, sort of repeat, Absolutely. I guess. An experience that cannot be repeated. Here, the command, their immediate commanding officer saying, who, who is this Trudeau? He got in touch with his senior officer and suddenly the senior officer realized, oh man, that's the prime minister who's missing. <laughs> and then they all came running down and apologies. I said, he said, don't apologize. I had the time of my life, he said. My <laughs> life. And up in the hotel, it was like, you know, what's going to happen now? Heads will roll. Something will happen. Nothing. Mm. Nothing is to happen. These guys, I'm so happy that these guys are doing their job so effectively. Trudeau really was living his best life in that story. Stories come at you from every angle and at any time in this industry. And Mitchell Collier proved that perfectly with some belters in episode 47 including one involving someone also living their best life. Have you got any examples of any funny stories that are shareable? I've got, shareable. I've got, to, I've got to put that in now because so many of them aren't. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I mean, Raymond Blanc is always full of fun stories. Working at Le Manoir is full of fun stories. <laughs> shareable ones. Yeah, it's, it's tough, isn't it? Feel- I've been thinking about this and I'm thinking, oh, well, yeah, I can't really tell that one because yeah. uh, <laughs> it puts too much, uh, <laughs> might get a few people into trouble. I think one of the, oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> you've, just, you've just run that thing through your brain and go, oh, no, I can't even tell that one. Um, I, mean, yeah, I did. I, I, well, I mean, I always used to love dog sitting behind the office, uh, behind the reception desk, you know. Just, right. uh, so at Le Manoir, we, ha- we have kennels. Yeah heated they're padded they're gorgeous kennels but i'd always feel bad for leaving the dogs there mm. 
So uh, there have been a few times that I might have just said to the owner, don't worry, just leave him behind reception and, and I'll take care of your dog. You know, just bring a bed under there and I'll, I'll watch over them as I'm, you know, trying to run a hotel. Yeah. <laughs> My priorities straight. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, just another way that, that highlights that hospitality really has everything. Absolutely. The, the ability everything. to dog sit while you're at work. Yeah. <laughs> as well. Uh, that that gets my vote. I'm a I'm a big dog fan. We've we have a little beagle. Okay. And I see, like you, I couldn't imagine leaving her in a kennel. She no. has to she has to be in the restaurant with me, or or not at all. No, I I absolutely love to do do love dogs and and yeah, I just couldn't put them in the kennel. It was too bad. Yeah. Um, there was a I had uh, I got another story in terms of. Uh, buggies you know the golf buggies everyone who works in hotels that gets to have a golf buggy just loves it yeah i remember one of those going over going down a bank once flipped over uh, and it was a case of is there enough damage that I can get away with it just to put it yeah. back into the <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, do, do, do. yeah. Uh, nothing to see here <laughs> it's not my fault they're not four wheelers they're not off off-road but we had to take them off-road a few times <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd show me somebody who's been given access to a golf buggy who's not tried to thrash the hell out of it. Then uh, you know you've not lived, have you? <laughs> uh, or, or another one might be um, a linen porter called me up once in panic, saying uh, there's a dog yelping in one of these rooms, and I'm thinking, oh god, you know, you can get noise complaints anyway. So I went up um, to see him on, on the floor, um, and it turns out it, it wasn't a dog it was just um two people expressing their love for one another <laughs> oh superb oh that's brilliant uh, there we are it, it took us three stories but we got the one that um <laughs> no one's implicated in that one no, 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 no that's anonymous that's fine uh they'll oh. know they'll know who they are so one of mitchell's stories turned out to be about love sort of Another tale of love now, but definitely not one that was perfectly straightforward, with this cracker from Mark Kirby in episode 38. You know, I know there's loads of funny stories, but I'm not sure I can actually tell them, all yeah. of them anyway. <laughs> they could get me into a lot of trouble, so I'll keep those, uh, the ones that might get me uh, fired uh, out, of the, out of this story. But um, there was one that was, I remember at the time, I was both scared and, and laughing to the point where, you know, you know when you start to laugh and you can't stop yourself. Yeah. So I was at one particular hotel. I won't mention the name of the hotel, but I was at one particular hotel and you know, this family had been visiting the hotel over the years and then their son had come out and he was now um, quite a lot older and had wanted to propose to his fiance, his girlfriend, uh, fiance to be. And um, basically we'd set up and we'd arranged with him, look, you know, and what we'll do is we'll decorate the room. Uh, you'll hide in the room because she, you know, he was out here already on, on a little bit of business. Um, he'd invited his girlfriend to come out from the UK. Uh, so we arranged for him, you know, she was expecting him to go to the airport and pick her up. So he made that, you know, that call to her when she landed to say, look, I'm still out with my mates. I can't come and pick you up and just have me a few beers. If you I hope you don't mind going to the hotel and I'll meet you later. So she's at this point fuming and he, he'd, he'd set it out like that. So off, yeah. off, off they went. I hope he doesn't hear this story actually, because he doesn't know the story behind this. <laughs> I'm good friends with him now. Um, <laughs> So 
there they, there he was. He was standing on the balcony in his room. All the room was full of petals and you know, candles, and it was all set. And you know, I was downstairs waiting for for his girlfriend to arrive in the hotel car from the airport. And all of our hotel cars were the same. And um, one car pulled up, and I'd been told, you know, I checked with the doorman. The doorman said, "Yeah, this is such and such. You know, we've got confirmation from the airport. This is the right car." So off I, you know, stepped forward. You know, Good evening and welcome. And Mrs. Such and Such, and I said the name, checked in, and, she, and the lady replied back to me and said yes, and she said, no, maybe as you're getting out of the car, you're not, not really listening to what's going on, it's all a bit of a dream. So we started, I started walking with this lady, and she, you know, she, pretty, pretty looking lady, and she was walking through the lobby with me, and I remember saying, saying to her, you know, I'm starting to have a little bit of a chit-chat on the walk through to, to where the, the lifts were, and it was, luckily, it was a larger hotel, so it was, it was a good walk. Yeah. Um, so... I started talking to her and she then said, you know, I don't, no, I've just, I've just come in from Paris. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, this lady's coming from Paris and she's meant to have come in from the UK. This is a bit of a worry. Mm. And so I started to ask a couple of more questions and it just it wasn't ringing the bell. So I said, oh, can I borrow your passport? I just need to scan it. And I took the passport out of her hand as I'm walking and talking and I realized it was the wrong lady. Um, and we were walking this lady, we were walking this lady, you know, up to potentially up this room to be proposed to. My life. So me, I literally had to. I literally had to lose this lady. I had to find a member of the team and said, "Oh, yeah, can you take this lady? And can you take her off to to be checked in? You know, just arrived off flight. You know, checking in. Here's the passport. Look after her." And I turned around to literally leg it back to the front of the hotel to go and pick the right guest up, who came in about a minute behind in identical hotel car. And this is a problem when you're in Dubai. You have lots of these flash cars, and they're all the same. You know. Yeah. And, all, and most of the international flights all arrive at once. So I, I rechecked the second time and it was the correct person. But to this day, it sort of it gives me the chills, actually. My hands have gone a bit, a bit, a bit cold here because if I'm thinking about it, you know, at the time I was laughing a lot. But, you know, had I, had I taken this lady up, number one, we'd have proposed to the wrong lady. <laughs> Secondly, the other lady was so close behind that maybe the first lady was still in the room when the second lady arrived. So you can just imagine what oh, happened. She was already in a bad mood. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so can you imagine? Oh, goodness. Um, and I remember talking to my reception manager at the time. We, thought, well, we couldn't stop laughing, honestly. It was one of those hysteric, hysterically nervous laughs that we sort of thought we got away with that one. But um, yeah, not, these things happen in hotels. But um, that, that, could have been a really, uh, that could have been a really good, good story to tell. Mark, once again, demonstrating the power of problem solving and quick action. We've reached the end of the show. But before we'll go, I'll leave you with one of my all-time favourite stories from season one and the story with my favourite line ever from the show. Since recording this, which was episode 11, David Cowdery has announced his retirement and I wish him all the best in his future. From his epic story, he gave us this absolute gem involving a vibrating parmesan machine. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So, along the way, you've interacted with, I'm sure, some right characters what are the what are the funny stories that you can remember from your career or has nothing funny ever happened to you ever (laughs) (laughs) nothing funny I'm deadly serious Um, so many funny things I suppose along the way that you can repeat (laughs) yeah well I I always think that you know if if you did them by yourself then you can repeat them because uh, that I mean, I suppose going harking right back to Switzerland days and the Barnoff Buffet, um, I was asked to everything there was on a massive scale. Yeah. 
and um, I was asked to grate Parmesan cheese, and this wasn't a jape in the Savoy sense that we talked about, right? <laughs> but um, it was a whole Parmesan. So I thought, yeah, how do you do it? And they said, go down to the cellar, and you'll find this machine. And anyway, basically, you put the whole Parmesan in this machine. But the only way, you know how hard Parmesan is, that you yeah, could yeah. hold it against the, the grater, was to sit on this vibrating machine whilst the Parmesan <laughs> was grated, the whole Parmesan was grated through the thing. And sitting on a vibrating Parmesan machine has to be one of my funniest culinary experiences. Um, and it's those sort of things when you're by yourself that you find amusing. Yeah. Often, you know, you don't want to be amused at other people's expense. Very often you are amused in, in our business at, yeah. at other people's expense. For sure. Whether yeah. it's the drunk guest or the uh, slightly loud guest or, or that. So yeah. there's often amusing moments at other people's expense. But, but having amusing moments when you're by yourself, I, I always think is good. Yeah, and well, in that circumstance, I'm guessing you don't want to be sitting on the Parmesan uh, for too long. <laughs> Definitely not. There was a moment to get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there we have it. Everyone has a story to tell. These were just some of my personal highlights from what has been a wonderful 18 months. Chatted to so many exceptional people from the industry. I really could have made a five-hour show. That brings season one to a close, and I know it's the longest-running season in the history of all of the seasons. But it's been an honour and a privilege to get some time with so many amazing people who are engaged with the incredible industry of hospitality. But don't worry, I'm not done and in many ways I'm just getting started. I'll be taking a podcasting break for a couple of months, but in that time, Hospitality Meets will refresh, reboot and re-energise. We'll be back in February 2022 ready to tell more amazing stories from the incredible people of hospitality. But until then, let's all keep fighting the good fight and keep raising the bar on the information that gets out on hospitality. Greatest industry on earth.